Hello and welcome to Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. Baseball season is here. Considering all of the new rule changes and exciting transactions that occurred during the offseason, it will be interesting to see how baseball's 2023 season is documented for future generations. It could be a pivotal year. Today on the show, I speak with Joseph Price, Professor Emeritus and Director of the Institute of Baseball Studies and Baseball Reliquary at Whittier College in Southern California. On the opposite coast from the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Reliquary aims to foster an appreciation of American art and culture through the context of baseball history. It's an eclectic mix of unique baseball artifacts and education, right up my alley. I really enjoyed speaking with Joe. For my overtime segment this week, I'll be exploring the life of Abner Doubleday, the real-life Civil War general who is a big part of the mythical story surrounding baseball's origin. Joe and I banter about him a little bit, but I wanted to do a deep dive on Doubleday's life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joe. Today on Hallowed Ground, I'm speaking with Joe Price, Professor Emeritus and Director of the Institute of Baseball Studies and the Baseball Reliquary at Whittier College. Joe, how are you? I'm well. It's good to be with you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I would love to start out with your background, just kind of as a baseball fan and developing this love for the sport. How did that begin? Uh, I recall, or I have seen that my first grade photograph with my classmates features me in the front wearing a baseball uniform with emblazoned letters across the chest, my name, Joe Price. My mother had hand-sewn the outfit for my sixth birthday weeks before beginning the first grade. And so I do not know exactly how I had become a baseball fan, but I do know that shortly after having that first grade experience and photograph, I read about Don Larson's perfect game in the World Series. And because I'm a preacher's son and had grown up in a religious household, uh, perfection was something that we knew that was a part of aspirations. I thought that it was a divine sign that I've become a Yankees fan. And I have been for the last uh, 70 years. That's awesome. And that's quite the time to be a Yankees fan throughout that time, I'm sure. Yes. And even judging today, it's pretty good. Yes. They they haven't had a losing record since the 90s or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's not a team that I root for personally, but they're they're certainly feared and uh, up there in payroll and stars and they're always really good so but the issue is really i'm just a baseball fan whether it's uh, watching little league games or the collegiate games whichever team home team i'm attending or singing for that's what that's who i root for unless it's against the yankees yeah yeah it's just fun to watch baseball at any level i agree with that i would love for you to explain to listeners like what is the Baseball Reliquary and what is your involvement with it and how did you first get involved? The Baseball Reliquary is a grassroots organization, not for profit. It's an educational institution organization that was founded in 1997 by Terry Cannon, who directed the Reliquary until his death in 2020. Initially, it was a peripatetic museum a museum without a location. So it was a traveling kind of exhibit, number of fabulous exhibits over the years in libraries throughout the Southern California area and even extending on up to the San Francisco area. The hallmark project that Terry and the reliquary undertook about uh, 15 years ago was a 
project in Mexican-American baseball in the Los Angeles region. And when Terry initially proposed that idea to the librarian at Cal State LA, the librarian said, so what materials do you have that you would like to exhibit? And Terry said, frankly, none. We're just going to open it to the community to submit their family photographs and stories and oral histories. And not only did that event uh, garner incredible recognition, including a national uh, award, it also spawned subsequent explorations into Mexican-American baseball histories of the greater Los Angeles and Southern California region and South Texas and even Kansas City. Instrumental in that project has been Richard Santillan, a retired professor from Cal Poly Pomona, who has basically coordinated the publication of, I believe now, 18 books on uh, Mexican-American baseball in local communities. That is the kind of enterprise that the reliquary has been involved in. In 2000, however, 1999-2000, the baseball reliquary started a celebration known as the Shrine of the Eternals, where the members of the reliquary, ordinary people like you and me, uh, vote annually on uh, a list of 50 proposed candidates, the top three of whom are then elected into the Shrine of the Eternals. In the inaugural class, Doc Ellis was one of the inductees, and he was so moved to be recognized for his, his excellence that he, he was brought to tears. Others have similarly had that experience. I did not attend that event. I was not aware of the reliquary until about 2010 when there was an event celebrating Jim Bouton's 40th anniversary of the publication of Ball Four. And I attended that event and found a community of like-minded fans and devotees to baseball. And so I became a member of the reliquary at that time the $25 membership fee. And for $25, it meant that I got to vote on the next year's class of electees into the shrine. It has continued through 2020 when there was a class elected, but we were delayed to induct them until November of 2022, when we were finally able to plan an indoor event that would meet with the COVID regulations uh, of Southern California at that time. That's awesome. And yeah, thank you for sharing that that story. And can you talk about how the reliquary relates to the Institute of Baseball Studies? Because that's just, that's interesting to me as a baseball fan and also someone that wants to work in a, a sports museum. Let me back up just a second, though, about the baseball reliquary itself. The reliquary had accumulated a number of artifacts of, well, their provenance would not probably pass that of um, a good scholar or even a good good seventh grade student. But the issues for being elected into the Shrine of the Eternals or for having artifacts that are part of the reliquary's uh, trove of treasures is that it's not so much about 
statistics or about verified authenticity as it is about being able to enhance the story, the telling of the story, so that the educational emphasis of the reliquary uh, had been so significant that over the years, Terry Cannon and the reliquary had accumulated about a thousand books, uh, baseball books, plus the archives of uh, the exhibits that the reliquary had put on and the documents related to the Shrine of the Eternals. So in 2014, he approached me and asked if Whittier College would like to become the repository for the archival materials of the reliquary. Well, I jumped at the chance. Two of my colleagues, Charles Adams and Mike McBride, both of whom are baseball passionate uh, fans, also had libraries like I had. And so we pooled our baseball libraries with those of the baseball reliquary. And we started with a unique collection of about uh, 1,400 books uh, that we opened to provide a resource center for students and the public to, to utilize for doing research in the significance of baseball in American culture. And uh, it was a project that took a couple of years to convince the administration to be able to allow us to have some dedicated space. But thankfully, the uh, president and the dean at that point thought that it was just quirky enough and just enough fun to keep three retiring professors involved with the institution beyond their classroom duties. Okay. I want to go back to something you said earlier about measuring like the the story of baseball and its impact on the culture. And why is it important to measure that impact instead of just looking at statistics only? Because statistics are important, but in some ways the impact is more important. Among other things, people probably do not remember Mark Fidrich for his one lost record or his ERA, but they do remember him for his antics on the mound. People know that certainly Ruth hit 60 home runs in one year, but do they know his lifetime batting average offhand? No, they know his impact because of his prodigious appetite and desire for fun and his love of the game in relating it to kids. So it's, a, it's about the largesse of the relating of the, the game rather than the accomplishments of the statistical, statistical excellence of players. So it's also possible for someone to be in the shrine of the eternal state without having had a major league career or even having played baseball because of their influence on the game. Let, let me give a, an example. Dr. Frank Job, the first surgeon who performed the ligament replacement for Tommy John surgery, was one of the inductees uh, into the Shrine of the Eternals. Why? Because of the impact he has had on the game. He was introduced by Tommy John at his induction, and a couple of years later, Tommy John was also elected into the Shrine of the Eternals. Now, it's a shame that Tommy John, who's just uh, 13 or 14 games shy of 300, is not in Cooperstown Hall of Fame, given his incredible career and the fact that there are not going to be any more 300-game winners uh, probably in our lifetimes. But uh, Tommy John 
was uh, inducted into the Shrine of the Eternals as well. So after an article appeared in a national publication of last fall about the Baseball Institute and the Baseball Reliquary, an orthopedic surgeon in Tacoma, Washington, contacted us about whether we would like to have his copy of the Frank Job textbook that showed the illustration of how to perform the Tommy John surgery. And that page with the, the diagram was signed by Tommy John when he had been in Tacoma, Washington as a visiting pitching coach on one occasion. I said, huh. yes, that tells a story. Let's get it. Others hadn't been interested in it, but that's the kind of artifact that is authentic that we can display along with uh, the plaques of Tommy John and uh, Frank Job for their induction into the Shrine of the Eternals. Yeah, what a cool artifact to kind of show those connections. And that's a, a great story of the impact of baseball. And that's kind of a more serious story, but there's a lot of like fun artifacts too. I was looking at y'all's website and the San Diego chicken mascot, and there was a tortilla in the face of Walter O'Malley. And like, what's that balance there between like the fun and whimsical aspects of baseball versus like the kind of more serious cultural pieces of it? The fun can be serious. Uh, yeah. So that that's, that's the, the good part about it. I mean, the, the provenance for the partially eaten hot dog by Babe Ruth that is part of the reliquary's collection is, of course, suspect. But that artifact tells the story about his prodigious appetite and his great love of hot dogs or his excessiveness in other ways is perhaps well told by a partially smoked cigar that was apparently left in a brothel in Philadelphia on one of his visits there. So telling the larger story about Babe Ruth is communicated to a variety of audiences, perhaps visually effectively uh, by means of these artifacts. And the, similarly for the, the Walter O'Malley tortilla image, that is in keeping with the, the, the perception that uh, saints images sometimes appear in various ways uh, that makes it the reliquary as a place for saintly artifacts and documents. Yeah, another artifact I noticed was a skin fragment purported to be of Abner Doubleday. So yes. I just thought that was really fascinating because that's something you don't see for one thing but then it's also like is it real like Abner Doubleday is kind of a mythical figure anyway in Cooperstown and all of that so I would just love for you to kind of speak about that piece in the collection. Ah, uh, well you term it well when you identify Abner Doubleday as a mythical figure. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not real it just means that it communicates a truth of some kind. And in fact, the piece of uh, skin from Abner Doubleday allows to tell the story about a myth uh, of his having created baseball in ways that effectively challenge the received history of many grade school stories about how was baseball invented and where and in Cooperstown by Abner Double. No, 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 no. 
and to see a skin fragment that is preserved is a, a vivid way to uh, communicate the truth about the origins of baseball. Yeah, that's a good point, because I think regardless of the artifacts origins or provenance, like it's it tells a story regardless, and you're able to kind of teach people that way. And what are some of the exhibits that the reliquary has collaborated on in the past to help teach and kind of influence baseball culture? Well, let's see. We've um, had Negro Leagues exhibit uh, that was very effective, um, so effective that the San Francisco Public Library asked for it to be put on display there for an extended period. And when it was taken down, uh, the head of the library indicated that it had garnered more enthusiastic response than any of the recent programs or exhibits that had been uh, identified with the library. Uh, here at the LA Public Library uh, from May to November of last year, uh, the baseball reliquary exhibited some of its pieces, a few of the plaques, a few of the awards, San Diego chicken costume, which drew uh, incredible attraction, as well as a number of the original art pieces, including a triptych by Greg Jezuski, who had been commissioned to produce a, a work commemorating the founding of the Negro Leagues at the centennial of the founding of the Negro Leagues. And he entitled it The House That Rube Built uh, for mm -hmm. Rube Foster. And it's an impressive, impressive piece and has as its triptych format resonance with the sacred style of a number of medieval works of art. Um, in addition, there was a portrait of Daryl Strawberry by Pat Riot exhibited, and it is probably the most baseball-appropriate medium for a portrait that could be imagined. Uh, to make the pointillist pieces for the style of the portrait, Pat Riot chewed bazooka bubblegum as a tribute to bazooka strips and tops cards, uh, and so he rolled the bubblegum pieces into small dots, then painted them and it creates a vivid image of uh, Daryl Strawberry. That may be the most strange artifact I've ever heard on the podcast, <laughs> but that is very fun. But it also speaks to like art and baseball and Negro Leagues and baseball for other exhibits. And like that's stories that need to be told and haven't been told in a lot of cases. Yeah. So the it sounds like the Reliquary does that well and quite a bit. We try. and. We're trying to extend our reach beyond the Los Angeles County libraries at this point with contacts in uh, Riverside and San Bernardino counties. But uh, for the most part, we're limited simply by the fact that we are an entirely volunteer organization. So we have no paid staff and we have no budget. Uh, so we operate only on donations and the baseball passions of my two colleagues and me. Do you have another story like the one with Doc Ellis about the reliquary's impact or maybe on a visitor or a researcher that you would want to share? Because I think just the impact of baseball in society is so vast and wide ranging. I was curious if you had a story. Similar uh, to 
Doc Ellis's tearful uh, acceptance was one by J.R. Richard, uh, who was inducted. Of course, his career was cut short because of his circulatory issues, but his life had taken a significant downturn, and it took being rescued, basically, to, to turn his life back around, and he has become a minister. So he became so enthusiastic in his acceptance speech that he started delivering a sermon, a sermon about baseball and about uh, his faith, but it was baseball and faith intertwined. We were worried that it was going to end up being a, a revival service almost at the, uh, it, it, it took on a life of its own. Somewhat similarly, Steve Dalkowski is also one of the inductees into the Shrine of the Eternals. And although he never made it to the major leagues, he became the model for Ron Shelton's Muke Lelouch for the film Bull Durham. Incredibly fast pitcher, incredibly talented, and just a bit outside. So Dalkowski, like J.R. Richard, had at one point been homeless and had uh, been destitute. So his recognition brought more tears to the audience than it did to him uh, as he accepted his award. That's cool. And it shows like the the impact that recognizing these people has on them, even though it's not it's not like the Baseball Hall of Fame ceremony in the summer with thousands of people. It's it's impactful to be recognized for their their impact on the game and on the people that watch them and have told these stories about their play throughout the years, which is which is a really cool honor, I'm sure. You had a good segue with J.R. Richard kind of preaching about baseball and speaking about that. And that ties into some of your own like academic interests. I was looking on Whittier College's website and some of your uh, books, I believe, and things like that deal with religion and sports. And how did those interests kind of merge for you in academia? Well, uh, as I indicated at the opening of this segment, that uh, I grew up in a preacher's household and I was a passionate baseball fan from as early as I can remember. So I needed to make sense out of my passions for faith and for baseball. And I began to explore their convergence, especially after I became aware of Michael Novak's book from, I believe, 1977, The Joy of Sports in which okay. he identifies the spiritual dimensions of sports and of sports fascination. That book prompted me to start thinking about the convergence of sports and religion. And as I began my teaching career at Whittier College, I attended a game uh, at Dodger Stadium that was between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Historian of religions was seated next to me as we were in the front row of the fifth deck uh, there at Dodger Stadium behind home plate. And as we watched the game, we be I began to muse about the particular layout of the field, the lines extending yet into infinity to determine fair and foul, the four bases being the cardinal points uh, of the earth, the pitcher's mound as a a kind of cosmic mountain. And the more we talked, the more we began to rhapsodize about how 
the baseball field itself resembled the ancient Greek omphalos myth of creation. Uh, and we were we were just having great time. People around us thought that we had had one too many, but <laughs> amazingly, we had had none. But that prompted me to begin writing some about baseball myth, about creation myths, about religious myths, and how those converge in various ways, and then utilizing other theoreticians, particularly the ideas of uh, civil religion and how baseball might function as a kind of civil religion, I then discovered a 1919 essay from The Dial in which a philosopher had written about baseball as the national faith. So I was a century late almost uh, in coming to recognize uh, the, the power that baseball had as a centering force for um, many Americans in the shaping of their worldviews. And Joe and I are speaking during the World Baseball Classic, and you speaking about that kind of reminded me of America's love for baseball has not died, but it has decreased over time as football has increased and all of that. But then looking at countries like Japan and Venezuela and, and some of the other Latin countries like it's maybe even more of a religion in those countries, which is just interesting to think about, like those cultural differences. So you just kind of in, prompted me to remind myself of that. In, in fact, uh, one of the courses that I taught at the end of my teaching career was a course called El Baseball, a Caribbean religion. And for that course, we took field trips uh, in our January term, we took students to Puerto Rico to study baseball as a religion in Puerto Rico. And then two years later, we took students to Cuba to study baseball as a, a Caribbean religion in Cuba. And indeed, it bears out well that there is a certainly a national passion and gravitating pull toward baseball in, in those island countries. Sounds like I went to the wrong college and I needed to go take your class. That sounds really, really neat. And it's so true. Like I've been reminded myself of just those those national ties because you see it so evidently in their their play. As we kind of wind down here a little bit, I wanted to talk about your other kind of passion or kind of thing that you've done is sing the national anthem at a bunch of stadiums. So have you always been into music? And obviously the national anthem is sung at every sporting event. So was that kind of a natural thing or did it develop over time? I was vocally trained in college and graduate school and most recently with uh, a member of the LA Opera. So I have significant vocal training, but I have always loved to sing. As long as I've loved baseball, I've loved to sing. And so when I was a graduate student in Chicago and uh, the late 1970s, I wrote to Bill Vett to ask for a chance to sing the national anthem for the White Sox for a game. I listed the professional credits that I had there in Chicago and didn't hear back from Beck until six weeks later, his son, Mike Beck, called and invited me to sing for Fan Appreciation Day. I said, when do you want me to audition? He said, you're fool enough to ask. We're fool enough to let you do it. Uh, so <laughs> I I had a grand time singing that afternoon uh, in front of 50,000 fans and thought that that was my one shot in the sun. 
until several years later, after I had begun to teach at Whittier College, we invited Don Sutton to a an event where he was the featured presenter at a small luncheon for 15 people. And one of my colleagues purchased one of the spaces and invited my sons and me to join him for uh, the time with the luncheon at Sutton, with Sutton. And my older son rashly pointed out to Sutton that I embarrassed him regularly at the ballpark by singing from the stands, uh, the national anthem and fans would turn and applaud and he, he would always get in, embarrassed and Sutton said, here, call this number at Dodger Stadium and why not sing there? So first thing the next morning, I call that Dodger Stadium number. Uh, after several referrals, I was told to send in the tape. I had none, so I went to the music department, asked them to set up their recording equipment, cut a tape, and uh, two weeks later, I was singing at Dodger Stadium. And that ended up being so much fun, I thought, why not return or try to return? So I've returned to Dodger Stadium a half dozen times in Anaheim. And I thought, well, I travel across the country to speak at conferences. Maybe I can arrange to sing at other ballparks as well. So I've been able to sing in 21 major league ballparks. And as things would happen, a colleague read an article in USA Today about a fan who had attended a game in all 189 professional ballparks in a single season. Wow. And my colleague Fred said, Joe, why don't you sing in all? I said, are you crazy? You know, that's too, too incredible. Well, uh, I was due a sabbatical the year that my wife retired from her teaching career. And so I came up with the cockamamie idea of trying to sing in as many minor league ballparks in a single season as possible. And so we set out and had a national tour of singing in 104 parks in 40 states over the five months of the season. And uh, it was a grand experience. We love almost every ballpark except the ones where there was 112 degree temperature at game time. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it was a fabulous fun experience of baseball in America. Yeah, what a trip and what a way to kind of use your your talents as you've honed over the years. My last question for you, Joe, and thank you again for your time. This has been a really fun conversation, is do you have a favorite artifact in the Reliquaries collection? Well, we have a piece of a glove from Josh Gibson, a wow. piece of a catcher's mitt, and its authenticity has much better provenance than most of the artifacts that we have. But of the fun artifacts, I really think that the cigar of Babe Ruth is fun, or the purported tooth from Ray Fossey that was found by a groundskeeper after the collision of Pete Rose with Ray Fossey at home plate in the All-Star game. Those are uh, great storytelling artifacts that I think bring a smile to my face every time I see them. And it sounds like the reliquary um, does a great job of linking baseball to culture in various forms. And thank you all for the work you all do with that, because I think that's an important story to tell. So if listeners are interested in the reliquary, you can find them online at baseballreliquary.org. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you. It was a delight to be with you, Andrew. When perusing the Reliquary's new website prior to interviewing Joe, I was baffled to see Abner Doubleday's skin fragment listed among the items in the Reliquary's collection. 
What an interesting artifact. Most baseball fans have likely heard the unique name of baseball's alleged founder, but who was Abner Doubleday? In this week's Overtime segment, let's explore the life of this American war hero and famed figure in baseball's origin story. Abner Doubleday was born on June 26, 1819 in Boston Spa, New York, 30 miles north of Albany. Boston Spa is now home to the National Bottle Museum, which explores the history of bottle making. Who knew? Abner's father, Ulysses, was a soldier in the War of 1812 and served in Congress during Abner's childhood, which was spent in and around the Cooperstown, New York area. Abner was at West Point from 1838 to 1842, and it was during this time of his life where he was believed to have invented baseball in Cooperstown. Back to this in a bit. He served in the Mexican-American War and was stationed at Fort Sumter in 1861. It was Doubleday who oversaw the first shots of the Civil War, after militia forces in South Carolina fired upon the fort. Doubleday was a staunch abolitionist. He commanded Union troops at the battles of Antietam and Gettysburg before moving to administrative work by the war's end. He ended up in San Francisco and helped establish the city's first cable car company. Doubleday died in New Jersey in 1898 at the age of 73. Quite the life. Now, where does baseball fit in? The truth is, nowhere. Doubleday was at West Point when he was purported to have invented baseball in Cooperstown and was throughout his life not into athletics. He certainly didn't invent America's pastime. So how did he get named the founder of baseball? In 1905, the Mills Commission, led by A.G. Mills, a friend of Doubleday's, was appointed to investigate the origins of the growing game. Another Abner, Abner Graves, wrote to the committee saying he was present in Cooperstown in 1839 when Doubleday improved town ball and drew out some rules of baseball. Two words back then. Al Spalding, a famous player, executive, and namesake of Spalding Sporting Goods, which is still around today, was eager to find that baseball had an American founder, since he was in an argument with the Englishman Henry Chadwick, an important figure in early baseball. Chadwick said the game was derived from the British game, Rounders. The Mills Committee just took Graves' word for it and didn't investigate further, even though Graves would have been five years old in 1839. Doubleday was never in Cooperstown that year, and he never talked about inventing baseball. The ramifications of this accepted truth are enormous, even today. Doubleday Field opened in Cooperstown in 1920 to celebrate the town's connection to baseball's founding. It is still around today, and even used to host an MLB game each season. On a related note, the Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown because of its now myth-busted connection to Doubleday and the sport's founding. On America's other coast, the baseball reliquary holds that piece of Doubleday's skin in its collection. It was purported to have been found in the Hall of Fame's basement refrigerator in 1948. Its provenance, or evidence of originality, is unclear, but it adds to the mystique of a fascinating man. You can find the Baseball Reliquary at the Institute for Baseball Studies at Whittier College or online at their new website baseballreliquary.org, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. They also have a Facebook group, which I'll link to as well. Thanks to Joe for a fun conversation. And thank you for checking out Hallowed Ground, the sports museum podcast. Please share this episode with any baseball fans in your life. Thanks in advance. I'll have more sports museum conversations coming up soon. Until next time, sports fans.